are two big things that communications people do. One is uh, make something out of nothing. So take something and blow it up into a big deal, make a story. And, and the other is make nothing out of something. Take a controversy and diffuse it. And I have a lot more fun with the second one. <laughs> On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Well, welcome to 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. Today we're broadcasting from Founding Farmers at 20th and Pennsylvania Avenue, just a few blocks up from the White House. It is a great concept of a restaurant. It was started by the North Dakota Farmers Union and a farmer from North Dakota who wanted to bring an expansion of farm-to-table dining to Washington, D.C. They have a great menu that's all locally farm-sourced from other farms around the country as well. But I'm told they have over 47,000 family farmers as owners of the Founding Farmers Food Group. They started in 2008 here in town, and they're known for their handcrafted approach, not only to the food, but to the atmosphere. We're, here, we're sitting at hand-carved, handcrafted farm tables. They've got the decor that matches and they make their own beverages. Some of their spirits are locally, some of them are, are made by the North Dakota farmers. And I'm not just talking the spirits, all the way from their rye, their vodka, all the way down to their lemonade and their cola. So I highly recommend this place. It's a wonderful atmosphere. It's very family friendly, but they also do a great happy hour and it is usually packed. It's only been recently when you could walk in and get a table, but that's not a guarantee anymore. And my guest bird today on 80 Proof Politics is Matt Miller. Matt is a partner with Vianovo. And I'm going to let him explain what that is a bit. But first of all, cheers and welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, Matt, I was looking at the website for your office, and the description struck me as amazing for a couple of reasons. But let me just read you a, a section of it that really grabbed my attention. The, the Vianova mission is stated as being a strategic advising firm for high stakes brand, policy, and crisis issues. You shape public opinion and media conversation and win legislative fights. That's a big chore. I mean, how do you accomplish all that? So there are a few different things we do. I think they, they, they kind of stem from all of the partners, or most of the partners' background in politics, where we do some of the traditional things you expect our, our kind of company to do, which is you might hire us to try to win a fight in Washington or in a state capital, uh, and, and uh, shape public opinion around that, and, and help uh, clients figure out how to talk to legislators or how to talk to regu uh, regulatory bodies. But then we also do uh, a lot of crisis uh, communications. I particularly do a lot of crisis work just because of my um, part of my background you know, at the Justice Department, it leads me to, to you know, work well with attorneys and law firms. Not always the most fun thing in the world. but um, So is this corporate uh, so we, reputational crisis? Yeah, corporate reputational crisis. A lot of things where 
uh, a, a big company will uh, be under investigation by the Justice Department or you know by the SEC or name your regulatory agency, a state AG, yep. and they'll need a law firm to handle the legal side and they'll need a communications firm to, to help them. And a communications firm that gets the sensitivities of legal issues and gets how to work with, with law firms and how to communicate without completely destroying uh, your, your, your legal equities. It, I'm sure it's, you're factoring the political sensitivities as well. I mean, you, your background is both Hill and Department of Justice. I know it's a very diverse background among your partners as well. Yeah, that's right. So, like I said, I think everyone on the, on the everyone at the firm kind of worked in politics at some point, but we're bipartisan. We have people from the Bush administration, both Bush administrations. We have people from uh, the Obama administration. We got people that have worked. Um, you know, at, at in presidential campaigns and in White Houses and for governors, uh, as well as the House and Senate. The idea being we have all kind of done politics and done communications and done policy at the highest possible level. So when we walk into a boardroom and tell you this is how this is likely to play, we're doing it because we have experience on the other side of the, of the, the, of the field and you know, know what uh, political actors might be thinking. So it's not just the political diversity that a lot of lobby firms might have, but you also you have a diversity of background and experience yeah. that lend good value to your Yeah, customers. Yeah, that's right. We have lobbyists that work for us. We have people who, you know, we have, have uh, a partner who uh, helped run strategy for the Bush campaigns and is a big backwards, uh, background and opinion research. My background is in communications. We have another uh, partner who has a communications background that helped um, uh, run senior, senior communications for the Bush White House. So we come at it from basically, you know, if you have a, a, a political or a policy problem, we've got someone who can come at it from just about any angle. I have to imagine you did not come to D.C. years ago wanting to be a strategic crisis <laughs> communications consultant. What, what was your first gig in town? Uh, I came to D.C. first as a 16-year-old junior in high school from Amarillo, Texas, who showed up to be here to be a house page. Oh, the old page program. Yeah, that's right. Back when there was a house page program, it's it's since been eliminated. Um, and you know, showed up, and back then, you know, the the pages would uh, take documents from door to door for members of Congress. Um, we would answer phones on the House floor and tell the members their staff was calling or whoever was calling for them. Right. Um, all, all those things that have been the jobs that have made been made obsolete by technology, which is why there's no longer a page program right. uh, on, on the House side. But um, came here just as this kind of you know, naive kid from Amarillo, Texas, didn't know anything about politics, didn't know anything about national Did government. Did you have a political bug in any way at that no, point? No, not, not at all. Um, in fact, came here as a Republican, was a was a Democratic page. because right? Yeah, yeah, Democrats controlled Congress, and they had 54 pages to Republicans 12, because that's the way the House oh, works. Yeah, you know, right. the, the, it's, it's, it's winner-take-all It's a winner-take-all or almost all system. Um, and came up, and it was just kind of a Republican because my parents were, and and um, everyone in Amarillo was basically. Right. Uh, and within a week or two, knew you know was just listening to speeches on the floor and realized, hey, I agree with these guys on this side of the aisle, the Democratic side, not these other guys. Maybe maybe I'm not a Republican after all. <laughs> kind of sw- switch sides and have never gone back. So you did your page uh, experience during high school. You went off to college. 
did you come back to DC during college? Uh, I did. You know what? What the? I I was bitten by the political bug during oh, the, the page. Bad, I had it bad, and it was the 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 six months I was here as a page were really consequential. There was a big budget fight that was when when the first President Bush went back on his no new taxes pledge. Um, I was here for the debate uh, over whether to 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 go to war with Iraq, the first uh, Iraq war in early 1990. This is just a great time to be here, and I was completely struck by politics. Went to college in Austin, worked on campaigns when I when I was uh, in Austin, um, uh, including some some great ones. Ann Richards, you know, her re-election campaign, oh. unsuccessful re-election campaign. Right. Um, uh, and then uh, would come up here for summer internships and knew. I knew basically the entire time I was in college that when I was done, I was going to work in politics. Yeah. Did you do your internships on Capitol Hill as well? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. I was on the Hill. So you came to town knocking on doors, or did, had you lined something up through your campaign work? So I, uh, my last semester at, at UT, University of Texas at Austin, I was working for the campaign of, a, I say working, it was a you know, sort of internship, unpaid, the campaign of a, a Democratic congressman who was running for Senate. They got into a runoff and was just certain to win the nomination. A guy named John Bryant from Texas. Oh yeah. And and it was pretty clear that he was going to win, and I was going to graduate in May, and my first job out of college was going to be working on his campaign. And lo and behold, he lost to a school teacher from East Texas who drove around the state in a little white pickup truck and came out of nowhere and beat, and beat him. You remember Victor Morales? Yeah. And, and so um, I didn't have a job, but because of my connections, having worked on that, on that one campaign, um, was able to land a job uh, uh, in the 96 cycle working for Chet Edwards, a House member from sure. Waco, Democratic House yeah. member, as his press secretary. And, and you know, the lesson I tell kids all the time is just go work on a campaign, get into a campaign somewhere. And if, you work, if you're willing to work hard and you're good at what you do, the thing about campaigns is you know, the deck gets reshuffled every time after the oh, election. People end up right. all over the country, and the people you know will land up places and take you with them. Yeah. So did, had you studied communications in college? And so you were, had some background prepped you to be a press secretary? You know, no. I studied government, um, and I, I don't know what it was, but the on the Bryant campaign, when you show up at a campaign, and there's you know you can work in field and fundraising, sure. and I just gravitated towards the communication side kind of instantly. Hmm. Um, uh, I enjoy the writing side. I enjoyed kind of the, the making an argument, which is what you do as a communications. Right. You, you are you know you are tr- trying to figure out what's the best argument to win over voters. I just gravitated towards it naturally, and I, you know the, the the you ought to do what you're good at. Largely because it may be the only thing you're good at. You may, you may, be, you may not be good at other things. I would probably be terrible at raising money. So I, I stayed in press. <laughs> How long did you do that for Lloyd? Um, so, well, for, for Chet. So I mean, was, for, Chet, yeah, for Chet, sorry. So I, I, I worked for Chet, and then he won re-election, and I came to Washington. He had a full house office, so there's no gig open there. I went to work for Lloyd Doggett from, from Austin. Um, worked for him for a year in his house office uh, before moving on, kind of hitting the, the campaign circuit again, going to Connecticut to work for Chris Dodd, senator then-senator from Connecticut, who was facing what was supposed to be kind of his first real tough election campaign. There was a, yeah. been a scandal while he was chair of the DNC around foreign fundraising right. and the, the Clinton re-election campaign. Did, Ended did up being you just a, show up one day and volunteer, or had you no, through friends? No, through, through friends. I think um, the chief of staff in Doggett's office knew, you know, knew, his, knew, knew the Dodd campaign manager. Again, one of those examples where you, you work in politics. Everyone kind of knows everyone, sure. and if you do well, there are people who will help you out and place you in in campaigns. 
Yeah. So he went on to win. He went on to win. Um, I stayed. Um, I stayed in Connecticut for a little while after he went. I went to work for a public affairs firm, public strategies, where I first met you. That's right. Down the road. Yeah, a, good, Did a good Texas. A good, public good firm. Texas firm. Although I never worked for them in Texas. I worked for them in Connecticut, D.C., and San Francisco. Never, never in Austin, where I would have liked to work for them the most. <laughs> um, uh, but worked for them for a while, mostly back here in Washington before. I decided, I, you know, I, I stayed out long enough and went back right. into politics in 2004. Okay. And from there to? Uh, I went to work for the Kerry campaign, uh, yeah. John Kerry presidential yeah. campaign. Uh, around the time he was wrapping up the nomination, I went to work in Florida as the Florida communications director. You know, every every presidential campaign has kind of a centralized operation, and then they have state operations, and I was in the, the Florida operation. Um, you know, four years after the great Florida debacle of 2000, so at a time when all the you know, the eyes of the country were uh, were on us. And, Absolutely and, right. You know, uh, uh, so but I'm picking up a theme here. That, yeah. That campaigning sounds like it's in your blood, or at least was it, for a long, long it, time. It was for a long time. I mean, did, there is. Did that prove to be a good background for what you're doing now? Absolutely. There, there is nothing like a campaign. First of all. It's it's some. I mean, it is a young person's game. Oh, no doubt. Um, you have to move all around the country. It's terrible for family life, um, uh, and you know you can be out of a job uh, with no with no prospects, which is fine. With you're young, you can find something else, but not so great if you're having to feed a family. Um, but you learn so much, and you learn so much so quickly on campaigns because things are moving incredibly quickly and. You know, it's 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 not like other jobs where that no is never an acceptable answer on a right. campaign. Um, if you have a problem, you have to fix it, and you have to fix it right now. Um, uh, and especially on on the oh, press side. Oh, I can't side. imagine how much that has changed since you did it in '04. Yeah, that's right. Well, in it, it, the press side, it moves so quickly. Yeah. And you, any kind of uh, controversy that erupts, you have to deal with it immediately, or it, it can sink your entire campaign within a few days. So, it is a it is a, a, a total meritocracy, um, and a place where, you know, the the you know that at the end of the day you're going to win or lose, yeah. and you put everything you have. I mean, work as hard as you can, put all of your emotional energy into this thing. And in the end, you either win or lose, and there are you know obvious psychic rewards or, or <laughs> that come with that. There's you know, there are downsides as well if you lose, and you know which of course John Kerry did. Yeah. You know, for so what happened to you next? So I came uh, back to D.C. expecting to have a job in the the brand new Kerry administration. Yeah. We we expected to win. We had polling that told us we were going to win. Uh, that polling was wrong, obviously. Um, came back at a time when there were not a lot of jobs in D.C. Um, the Democrats had not really improved their position in the House or the Senate. We hadn't taken back the, the White House. Um, but la I landed a gig um, for a guy named Bob Menendez, a oh. then congressman from New Jersey, mm -hmm. who was chair. He was in the, the leadership in the House. And we had this kind of unique thing where Menendez was in the House, but wanted to move up to the Senate. There was no open seat, uh, but the senator from New Jersey, John Corzine, was running for governor, and if he won, he'd get to appoint his replacement. So we had this kind of uh, one, we had a one-year kind of beauty contest among all the members of the, the House de of the, the delegation, the New Jersey delegation, all trying to prove to, the, to John Corzine that they were the ones fighting mm -hmm. the hardest for him, and they were the ones that could most successfully defend the seat. And we won. He was appointed, and then went r immediately into... Uh, a re-election campaign that proved to be still the hardest job I've ever had, the ugliest, Is that right? uh, worst, yeah, it was a tough campaign. Um, and it's had a lot of sort of controversies around him. 
Um, you know, he of course later was indicted. Um, this was in that campaign. Chris Christie, that was in the mm-hmm. U.S. Attorney, opened an investigation into him, a federal criminal investigation, in 63 days before the election. It leaked out within a day of it having been opened. Obviously, a, a heavy load for a candidate to bear. Sure. Um, we bore it. He won. Um, but you, we we took a lot of income you know, on that campaign. And no as the press person, it. you know, it, it was it was tough. But but the upside is you learn more from those experiences than you do on you know, easy campaigns where you just kind of skate to a yeah. win and never face anything. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American Maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnership's YouTube channel. So he wins. You're back in town. Wins. I'm back in town. Um, uh, decided not to stay in his Senate office. I remember this conversation with him where, you know, I, I, I decided to go work for the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee to work on Senate races around the country. And I remember him saying to me, "We just, we just won. We've got, I've got a six-year term." And it's like, boss, I. I'm not really that interested in just being. I, I know, I know. This is this is fantastic for you. You have a six-year term. Sounds kind of boring to me. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, you know, so I went to the the campaign committee to work for Chuck Schumer. Um, Democrats had just taken back the Senate, held oh, the Senate, right. held yeah. the Senate by one vote, 51, uh, 40, 51 to forty-nine majority. Um, but in a cycle, two thousand eight, where we were really, really um, uh, on offense. Um, so. Um, you know, that was a time when George Bush was, was you know, really unpopular. Yeah. Um, we were on offense all the We picked up eight seats in the Senate. Um, and a, it, a really great time to be at the, com- the committee. And that had to be somewhat like campaign press work. It, a lot different than working for an individual member. Yeah. That's it's, for sure. But that, you're, you're basically working for the entire party. Yeah, it's great. Uh, it, it's a lot of fun because... You so you have to do two things. One is you are hiring or recruiting and nurturing and mentoring communication staff at all the campaigns around the country. Um, but the other thing you're doing, you're not really responsible for those candidates' um, uh, reputations. They have a staff to do that. You're on the you're responsible for beating the hell out of the other guy all the time. Oh, and so you fun. spend all day trying to figure out how to dirty up Republicans and the people at the Republican campaign committee spend all day figuring out how to dirty up Democrats and. It's a, it is a lot of fun because when you land a hit that then turns into a major controversy, it's, um, um, you know, you feel like you've done some good for the, for the campaign. And, you know, as much as I love working for politicians, um, not having candidates in your ear all the time is, um, oh, is not yeah. the worst thing in the world. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> to, <laughs> to say the least. No doubt about it. So you, you've gone through transitions a couple of times. And I want to talk to you now about would have to be one of the more challenging transitions because you spent a number of years as the spokesperson for the Department of Justice. Yeah. That has to be a complete mind shift from what you've been doing. Yeah, it was. Um, so I, so after the, the 2008 election, Obama wins. You know, we have 58 seat, 59 seats in the Senate. 
Um, I was trying to figure out what to do next. I wanted to go into the administration, um, had sort of decided that I would, I, I wanted to go to an agency, wanted to be one of the big four, state, treasury, uh, justice, or defense, um, as the lead press person, and kind of made that known. And uh, the, uh, the Obama transition recruited me to do um, press for the AG's confirmation team. So Eric Holder uh. was was going to be nominated. Um, I, I I think had not yet been nominated, but it was clear it was going to be him. And every confirmate every every nominee has a confirmation team. You have you know Sherpas that take him around the Senate, try to introduce him to committee members. You have people that handle the communications. And I, I remember this clear as day. I was sitting in, uh, home one morning and. I got an email from uh, a senior uh, communications person at the transition, well-known guy, um, who said, would you be interested in uh, doing a confirmation for AG? And I wrote back, yes, absolutely. Uh, and I was excited and left my wife that this is it, it's my break, I'm gonna you know, yeah. do this, we'll win, we'll make it in the administration. And went out to brunch, and as I was sitting at brunch, I thought, AG, did he mean attorney general or did he mean agriculture? Oh. <laughs> Assuming you had a preference for water. I didn't. I didn't have a lot of no. No offense, to agriculture, but not really my, my, my not really what interested me. And I wrote him back. Said, you did mean AG, right? And said yes. And I did. I got to know Eric Holder, a, a great guy, great boss. We went through the confirmation. That it was a, a confirmation that was expected to be pretty controversial. There were yeah. a few nominees that the the the, the, the transition knew were going to be tough. Um, Geithner. Uh, Holder and Dashiell were the three they expected to be tough. Dashiell proved to be the one that didn't get through. Right. Um, and ours ended up, I think Holder got 76 votes, which is something that would never happen That's today. Amazing. Yeah, got, got I seven, seven, that. yeah, got 17 or 18 Republican votes, which would never, never happen right now on either side. Yeah. Things are, and it's not like that was an era of great comedy, but yeah, <laughs> the people no. were pretty, pretty at, at each other's throats, but less so even than to, less so than today. Um, and when, you know, once I'd done that, it was pretty well set up to move over to DOJ. So you're one of those infamous <laughs> Sherpas that helps a candidate or a nominee get through the process, which can be extremely muddy, and one false step can squirrel the whole deal. Yeah, that's right? exactly right. So how did you, what was the approach from a communication strategy standpoint? How did you get your nominee to the point where it could be confirmed? So you're working on a, a few tracks with that. One is meetings with the members of the Senate, especially uh, members on the committee that has jurisdiction. So in our case, the Judiciary Committee. Um, two, you're dealing with whatever in, in the press with issues that might surface. And with Eric Holder, we knew that one big issue was going to be the pardon of Mark Rich in oh the gosh. final days of the Clinton administration. Yeah. You, remember, you remember this big yeah. scandal now about the, the financier who had fled the country as a fugitive. Um, Bill Clinton pardoned him on his last day in office. Holder had not had said, I'm neutral, leaning, favorable, so kind of a recommendation. And he had a history with the administration, too. So I mean, Holder yeah. knew this issue. Yeah, he knew the issue. He had been the deputy attorney general and had, had somewhat recommended it, and it was hugely controversial. We knew it was going to be a, a major issue. So you have to deal with that in the press for a while. And then you have the big thing, which is the hearing. And the, you know, the confirmation hearing, a lot of times, absent something, you know, the thing that can sink nominees is, one, some big revelation that the world doesn't yeah. know about uh, comes forward, comes out. And we had some of those, but none of them were big enough to derail him. You have to deal with those in the press. But then also the hearing. You have to perform well at the hearing and not make yes. any major mistakes. So you spend a lot of time, hours upon hours. People have no idea that when a cabinet nominee goes and does a confirmation hearing, they have spent maybe 30 hours in moot hearings, plus mm. other time reading memos and talking about what you'll say, but probably 30 hours 
at least 20 hours just taking questions over and over yeah, and over. Like a, a murder, panel like like a murder, a murder board. board. Yeah, it's yeah. a murder board. Um, so hopefully when you're nominees before that panel, they don't get any questions you haven't thought of. So if you were to, to draw a, a workflow chart on this process, it, it starts with identifying, making sure that the, the nominee is fully vetted, you have a full background picture as best you can at yeah. that point and you're trying to anticipate obstacles along the way. Of course, it concludes with not just the hearing, but the actual vote for confirmation. There's got to be a lot of work in between there. I mean, I know nominees spend a lot of time going around talking to the senators, yeah, trying to personalize their experience. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you do a lot of it before the hearing. Uh, those meetings are really valuable because the senators will tell you what they care about, which you then take back and using your hearing prep. So, you know, Senator Sessions asked us about this in his, in our meeting. Good chance you might ask you about that mm -hmm. at the hearing. Let's make sure we have an answer for it. Mm -hmm. um, and you're trying to get votes. And in Holder's case, we ended up, this seems crazy now, because um, 2009 was that not that long ago, and we weren't that much, that much less polarized then than we are now. We got 76 votes. We got votes from, That's seven, great. I think, 17, 18 Republicans, which would never happen now. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's hard to imagine it would happen, particularly when someone's running on a track record, because yeah. he had had the yeah. previous experience. A, a controversial track record at that. Oh, yeah. Right. But he was, I mean, he was... I mean, as qualified as you can get for attorney general. He'd been the deputy attorney general. There's not much more you can do to be qualified for AG. Right. But even so, it was remarkable that we got that many votes. And you know, the, the, an AG nominee won't get that today of either no, party. No, either party. party. I mean, Loretta Lynch, who was a non-controversial U.S. attorney, got like two or three Republican votes yeah. when she was confirmed. Yeah, it has gotten worse. There's no doubt about that. So was there some big surprise that popped up along the way? You'd prepped all this time. You'd done all the visits. You had identified what you thought senators would care about, and then there had to be a gotcha moment. Yeah, there was one. Um, there was a, a pardon of Puerto Rican terrorists that Clinton had issued. He had pardoned some, some Puerto Rican terrorists. That had been an issue for, you know, it's long since passed from American politics of, you know, actual terrorists of Puerto, you know, wanted Puerto Rican independence and Clinton had pardoned some of them and it had been very controversial and we were prepared for it but maybe not completely prepared for it. The LA Times sprung a story on us I think a couple days before the hearing that threatened to derail us and it was you know really controversial and popped up and it just ended up kind of fading away we had answers and they'd been recommend you know some of their they had recommendations from outside people they were not like mark rich who there were at least arguments you could make for their pardons versus mark rich who had just given a bunch of campaign money yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely right you come into the department of justice with a new administration after eight years of a department which was very proactive in a lot of people's opinions I mean, you had a number of issues related to terrorism that came through the department what did you find them to be your most challenging issues? You were getting up and running at DOJ. Yeah, they were all around those issues of terrorism and national security. We, so when we came in, um, the people who, you know, Eric Holder and a lot of the other people joining the Justice Department had been there during the Clinton years, um, so the 90s. Um, but DOJ changed dramatically after 9-11. The FBI became a counterterrorism agency, which it wasn't really before in, in a meaningful sense. DOJ kind of reoriented itself uh, largely around fighting terrorism. And we knew that national security had to be the number one priority. And we're prepared to, to focus on that. What we didn't realize was the extent of 
number one, the kind of overhang of Bush era issues that were, gonna, that were lasting over and would tie us up in knots. And number two, the political consequences of all those issues that the Republican Party had sort of you know, defined itself in the Bush years around terrorism. And when we started to dismantle some of the Bush era programs, even things that had been supported by Republicans, uh, that, or, even things that Republicans wanted to go away, like you know Guantanamo, John McCain and Lindsey Graham wanted to close That's Guantanamo right. down uh, towards the end of the Bush administration, all of a sudden there was no Republican support for that. Not only that, but they decided that this was a, a good, a, a very right political target for them. So for yeah. us to deal with uh, torture where we had to release the, these you know uh, these memos authorizing torture and we had to release reports investigating torture and we had to decide whether to authorize new investigations of people who had tortured and how to close down Guantanamo and what to do about the 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 9-11 um, uh, perpetrators, where to prosecute them. You had just all of these issues that were hanging over, and they would come at, they would come sort of at breakneck speed. You had court deadlines. You know, just because the administration's changed hands doesn't mean court schedules do. Uh, so there are, all these, there are all these court cases teed up, and we have things just hit us without much time to prepare and found ourselves pretty quickly in a number of political controversies that we had to deal with, but the that the administration writ large wasn't ready to deal with because there was so much else the White House had to focus on. The country was in this massive recession. Uh, they were trying to pass a health care bill, and there just wasn't a lot of political space to deal with all these legacy issues from the Bush administration that were tying us up in knots in a lot of ways. Okay, you've gone through all these stages of life. You've been at the lowest level, the page level. You've been at one of the top levels as communications director, spokesperson for the Attorney General of the United States. Is there something you wish you had done differently or sooner along the way to get you where you are now? Boy, what a great question. I don't think so. I mean, look, the, the thing about working in politics and government is, and maybe this is true for every career, but it's especially true here, you can't map out a linear path no. at the beginning of your career and know, have some idea of where you're going to go. It's not like, say, you want to be a big lawyer at a, a big white shoe law firm and you go, well, I want to, I'm going to go to law school. I want to get a clerkship afterwards. I want to do a summer associate at a big law firm and then you know, do all these things that the natural step that then I'll spend 30, 40 years as a partner at a law firm. It doesn't work that way in politics, partly because you never know when your party is going to win or lose. Oh, there's so, <laughs> the, so many variables right. outside of your control. Yeah, that, that's yeah. right. I mean, the, the, you know, you can do the best job possible on a campaign and do it if you're you know if you're a democrat and you do it in 1994 and your party loses control of everything and there's no jobs left in the house and the senate um or you know there were a lot, there were a lot of great talented people on hillary clinton's campaign who woke up unemployed the day after the election mm -hmm. in 2016 they thought they were going to be in senior jobs at the white house a good friend of mine was probably gonna be the white house press secretary that obviously didn't happen nope so you you just have to my i i, I was thinking politics you have to to Really show everyone you work with that, one, you know what you're doing, and two, you're willing to work hard. Yeah. And if you do that, you don't know what jobs you're going to end up in, but the, there's only a limited number of people in politics, and they all move around from one place to another, and if they see talented people, they'll take you with them. Yeah. And it's, I, the, be it's the best you can do, and hope you land in some place you like. It's so true. I have often described that as the value of yes. Yeah. Being right. willing to take on new challenges, new assignments. Yes, I'll do that. Sure. Yeah. May not have a clue what I'm doing, that, but I'll ask and I'll learn and I'll do it and you'll get my best. That, that is ex exactly the right yeah. philosophy. So to bring this full circle, Matt, you've had all these great experiences. 
that has culminated in what you do now for your clients, I assume. What has been, on a daily basis when you're representing clients or you're working for someone who wants to engage via Novo, how do you apply that experience on a practical basis? You know, so there are some uh, some very practical things I learned just about how investigations work that come in handy. So um, I represent a lot of clients who are under investigation by the Justice Department. And, you know, you have this thing. This is a cliche somewhat to say that in the middle of big investigations, the lawyers always want to say nothing and the PR people want to explain every story. Mm-hmm. It's not usually quite that simple, but it's not totally off the mark either. And I will be in a room a lot of times with a client in a big law firm. The law firm says, we can't say any of this. The DOJ will flip out if we do. And I'll say, that's not true. I worked yeah. at DOJ. They don't yeah. care if we say this. They'll, they care if we call them liars. If we accuse them of mm-hmm. in bad faith, that'll make them angry. But they don't mind if we go out and defend ourselves publicly. Um, and you learn there are some very particular things about the way the Justice Department works. Um, that not a lot of communications people know because there's just a very limited universe of communications sure. people that worked inside the Justice Department that have been really useful in kind of a, a niche practice um, uh, that I find extremely rewarding. I, I think of communications as they play. There, there are two big things that communications people do. One is uh, make something out of nothing. So. Take something and blow it up into a big deal and make a story. And, mm-hmm. and the other is make nothing out of something. Take a controversy and diffuse it. And I have a lot more fun with the second one. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a great, that's a great point because sometimes it's a lot more fun to play offense in that sense. Yeah. When really you're playing defense yeah. to manage a crisis. Just trying to bury something. That is great. <laughs> with, the, with this minimal trouble possible. Well, I really appreciate you joining us here on 80 Proof Politics. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this episode. Thanks again. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. And just remember, kids, no matter what you think about politics in Washington these days, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. <laughs> well said. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.